We're Genesis 4, but we're starting out in James 1. Genesis 4, but we're starting out in James 1. Let's do the smart thing. Pray, we'll go ahead and get started. Lord, as always, you teach, we listen, let your spirit guide and direct in all things. Thankful for just the time to be here this evening, Lord, in your name. Amen. Now, Genesis 4, we've been working through our study here on the book of Genesis, and Genesis 4 is the story of Cain and Abel. Obviously, in Genesis 3, we have when sin entered the world. But in Genesis 4, we start seeing the full effects of sin. I don't think I'm giving away the ending here. Cain kills Abel. So now with that out in the open, we need to talk about what happened and what caused this. We start out, if you're looking at your sheets, look at the first thing we have there. I sin because I choose to sin. This is a very important point. This has been said many, many times in many, many different ways. Cain killed Abel. There were no external influences on that. It's not that Cain grew up watching TV shows he shouldn't have watched. It's not that Cain listened to music he shouldn't have listened to. It's not that Cain had a long history in his family of murder. It's not. There were not external Influences that brought him to this point. Cain killed Abel because of sin, pure and simple. When you sin today, you sin because you choose to sin. Now, some people don't like that point. We live in a society today where it's always someone else's fault. Yeah, I lost my temper. Yeah, I said things I shouldn't have. But if you wouldn't have said that, I wouldn't have said this. Yeah, I shouldn't have looked. Yeah, I shouldn't have done that. Whatever. But if they wouldn't have, then I wouldn't have. Now, don't get me wrong here. People can be guilty of influencing you to do bad things. You can be guilty of influencing people to do bad things. And there is a spiritual responsibility for that. But ultimately, I sin because I chose to sin. If somebody comes into my life and tempts me and influences me to do wrong, they are guilty of tempting and influencing, but I can't blame them. I have a personal choice to make, and if I choose to go down the path of sin, it is my fault and my fault alone. Too often we have the blame thing. Where we say something to the fact of, and when I say these comments, I'm not talking about my parents. Please don't think that. Even though they're in the back helping tonight, don't go tell them I said this. You can't say, I cussed because my dad cussed. You cuss because you choose to cuss. Now, you may cuss more in the sense of because that's all you heard your dad say growing up. You still have a conscious decision of what words come out of your mouth. I've heard people say, I have a temper because my dad had a temper. Tempers are not genetic. You have a temper because you choose to have a temper. You may have seen behavior modeled in front of you that was awful. You may have seen a dad or a mom or a loved one constantly handle anger by throwing, by hitting, by screaming, by cussing. That's fine. But you still choose to lose your temper. I hear people say all the time, I'm a worrier. My mom was a worrier. Once again, it's not genetic. You're a worrier because you choose to be a worrier. I hear people say all the time, well, you know what? My husband just drives me to do this. He just... No, your husband doesn't drive you to do anything. You choose to. Your husband may be a negative, bad influence, but you choose to. Yes, they are guilty in the sense of influencing a negative behavior, and God knows that, God sees that, but ultimately you are responsible for the actions you do, just as I am responsible for the actions I do. Look at James chapter 1, verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one, each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. 
your desires bring sin. That's your choice. That's my choice. Some of you may have grown up in the most dysfunctional of all dysfunctional homes. You can still be a new creation in Christ Jesus. Yes, it may take years to work past the behavior that you saw modeled, that you thought was normal, and it's not normal. But you still can be a new creation in Christ Jesus. Too often we live in this society where we pass blame. And it goes back to what we talked about two weeks ago. I put it on your sheets there. What did Adam say when he got caught in sin? The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the tree and I ate. Passing blame. It's the woman. You did this, God. You gave this woman to me. No, Adam, you chose to eat. You chose to sin. So we have to get this point out right away. Because when we come study Cain and Abel, Cain killed Abel because Cain chose to kill Abel. Once again, there were not external influences that brought Cain down. It wasn't the way he was raised. It wasn't the environment he was raised in. Cain killed Abel because there was sin in Cain's life. And that sin drove him by his own choice to do things he shouldn't have done. So with that being said, jump now to Genesis 4. We got that introduction done. Let's see now what actually happens. Verse 1, Genesis 4. Now Adam knew his Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain and said, I have acquired a man from the Lord. Then she bore again, this time his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of the sheep, but Cain was the tiller of the ground. Some people believe, just throwing it out there, that maybe Cain and Abel were twins. Because if you look at the reading there in verses 1 and 2, it says that Adam knew his wife and she conceived. And it seems to be talking that there was one time there of that conception and possibly they were twins. We don't know for sure, but just throwing that out there. Very simply put, verse 2, Abel is a shepherd, Cain is a farmer. Verse 3, now in the process of time it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat, and the Lord respected Abel and his offering. But he did not respect Cain and his offering. Now, they already knew what God was asking them to do. We're going to get to this when we study out Noah here in a few chapters. How did Noah know what animals were clean and unclean? What some people believe is that when Moses actually wrote the law down in the book of Exodus, this wasn't something possibly new and shocking. This is something that they already knew for a long time, and they're now just making an oral written history of this for future generations. There was an idea here of, hey, guys, we need to bring offerings to the Lord. There's a time in the time of Noah where Noah knew what animals were clean and unclean. They already had this knowledge of what God was asking. So both Cain and Abel knew that God asked for an offering. That's what he needed. That's what he wanted. So Cain brought some of the stuff that he produced in the ground. Abel brought a sheep. And we see in verse 4, the Lord respected Abel and his offering, but did not respect Cain and his offering. Now, this is kind of a straightforward thing, but this is important. If you look at your sheet, Cain brought forth works. He brought forth something he did. He sweated for this. He worked for this. He dug the holes, planted the seed, watered the seed, got rid of the weeds, harvested the crop. Cain put a lot of effort into this. And that's what he brought before the Lord. Now, on the surface, that sounds better. Abel wouldn't pick the sheep. They really didn't do anything for or with. But here's the problem. Cain's sacrifice represents us, our works. Lord, I'm going to get to heaven. Why? Because I'm going to help every old lady across the street. I'm never going to cuss. I'm never going to lose my temper. I'm going to always do more than asked of me. And I will be so good that I will get into heaven. Look at the works that I bring before you. Look at the passage here in Isaiah 64, 6. We are all like an unclean thing, and all of our righteousnesses are like filthy rags. The best thing you can do is still unholy in the eyes of God. 
The only thing holy is Jesus Christ. And we got to remember that. On my best day, I'm still a sinner. My best day, I'm still a sinner. And we try to be like Cain. And I still struggle with this. I've been walking with the Lord for 20 years. And every now and then I fall into this little trap for a second of, Okay, Lord, i got a big thing coming up. Look how much I prayed. Look how much I read. Look how many good things I've done today, Lord. I don't say it, but in my heart it's almost like, Lord, you owe me. That's a dangerous place to be. My works are like filthy rags. It's only by the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ that I can ever taste heaven. See, Abel brought forth a sacrifice. He brought forth a picture of someone taking the punishment of sin for him. That little lamb is a picture of Christ. You can look at the passage there in Hebrews 9 I put down, that the sacrifice of himself. On the surface, it looks like Cain put more effort into it. And in a sense, Cain did. But Cain is trying to earn himself into the good graces of God. Abel brought forth a sacrifice that took the punishment of sin, and therefore God honored that sacrifice. So we see right from the beginning, works versus grace. Right from the beginning. That hasn't changed 6,000 years later. And you know what? The same thing still happens today. There's still this works mentality. I'm a good person. I'll get into heaven. The works mentality. I've jumped through these religious hoops. I will get into heaven. No, you get into heaven through Jesus and Jesus alone. And that's what we've got to remember. And that's what Cain and Abel represent right from the beginning. So anybody got any quick questions, comments about this? Because now we're going to take this point and we're going to build on it here in a second. Okay. Look real quick. What's the response of God? Excuse me. What's the response of Cain? Verse 5. And Cain was very angry and his countenance fell. See, you start seeing now a little bit of Cain. You start seeing that he's not happy with this. What exactly was wrong? But look at the, at the bottom of your sheets, the first side. It says the difference. Look at this great passage in Hebrews eleven four. It was by faith that Abel brought a more acceptable offering to God than Cain did. Abel's offering gave evidence that he was a righteous man and God showed his approval of his gifts. Hebrews eleven four. It's out of the New Living Translation. That sums it up perfectly. Abel's offering showed a righteousness. A righteousness of accepting the sacrifice that is a picture of Jesus. What about Cain? Look at 1 John 3.12. Now Cain, who was of the wicked one, murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his works were evil and his brother's righteous. You see this constant repetition in the New Testament. What Abel did was a righteousness. It's a picture of Jesus. What Cain did is a picture of man's works, man's attempt to get right with God. And it didn't work. So, God's response to Cain, he's angry. Verse 5, verse 6, the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your continents fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? If you do not do well, sin lies at the door, and its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. Do you realize nothing has changed in the 6,000 years since this happened? Verse 7 has everything you need to know right there in it. If you do well, will you not be accepted? So that means that as long as I do good, God loves me. No, if you do well, if you do things according to the plan of God... Will you not be accepted? The plan of God is knowing and understanding who Jesus is. Look at the next part of verse 7. If you do not do well, sin lies at the door. If I choose to get myself off the path of Jesus, sin is waiting for me. Sin wants to grab me, tear me down, pull me down, and destroy me. Verse 7, its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. There's a constant battle right now between you and sin for the rest of your life. And we're going to finish with that point. We're going to come back to that. But there's a constant battle until the day you die and you have entrance into heaven through Christ. There's a constant battle between you and sin. Sin's desire is for you. 
Think about that. How often during the day do you struggle with sin? Somebody says something they shouldn't say. You want to say something back. And you're like, hold your tongue, hold your tongue. You struggle with sin. You go to work and you're feeling tired. The Lord says, work as if working for the Lord, not for man. But you know you can rub that 15-minute break into 25 minutes and no one will even care. How often when you just plan to go to the store and you see an attractive guy or gal and you're tempted to look. Sin lies at the door. It is all over the place. So it's all over the place and it's a constant battle every day of our life to fight through this temptation. To fight through this battle. And that's what God is saying in verse 7. He's saying, Cain, sin wants you. Sin wants to destroy you. But Cain, if you do what is right in the eyes of me, you will do well. When you get off the path, then you will run into problems. But now, Cain's response reveals his heart. Look at these two passages here from Proverbs on the back of your sheets. The Bible uses a term that we don't use too much anymore. It's called a scoffer. And it's one of my favorite terms. I use it all the time. A scoffer is somebody who when you go to them in love and you try to help them, you try to correct them, and they just don't want to hear it. They scoff at what you're trying to say. Maybe you know somebody like that. Maybe you have a child that way where you try to go and correct them and they scoff at you. Maybe you have a friend that way. You have a loved one. I don't know. You try to go in the right heart, the right spirit, and the right love, and they just choose to reject it. That's Cain. God is coming to Cain here in verses 6 and 7 saying, Cain, do what's right and it will go okay. Look at these two verses here. I'm being a scoffer. Proverbs 9, 8. Do not correct a scoffer lest he hate you. Rebuke a wise man and he will love you. Have you ever gone to somebody in the right spirit and the right heart and you try to lovingly help them and they just get mad at you? That's a scoffer. Don't tell me what I'm doing wrong. I know what you're doing wrong. Who are you to tell me anything? They scoff at that. Look at Proverbs 15, 12. A scoffer does not love one who corrects him, nor will he go to the wise. A scoffer doesn't want to hear it. They don't. They don't want to be around you. They don't want to be near you. They don't want anything to do with you. They reject it. They know what they're doing is wrong, and they don't care. They don't care what you have to say about it. But what do we do? We put all of our energy and effort into these type of people where God says, let them go. They've got to have to learn the hard way. Now, here in one verse, verse 8, Cain kills Abel. Now, verses 5, 6, and 7. Don't you think God knew that's what was going to happen? Why didn't God step in? Why didn't God step in in verse 7 saying, Cain, I know what you're going to do, and don't. I do that with my kids. I see it all the time. I just saw the other day, Kenan, we have these little, we call them tournaments downstairs. The boys load up with armor and nerf swords, and I watch them fight. I know it sounds really bad. It's not the way it sounds. I don't bet. I don't put money or anything like that, but I watch them fight. And it's low-key. I say, stop. When you have to stop, when it gets out of hand, Kenan took a hard hit. Kenan is somebody we like to call a little giant. He doesn't realize that he's completely tiny. He picked up his sword, and his eyes went from fun to anger in a split second, and he's going to take Elias on. He picked up his sword, and I said, Kenan, be done. And he goes, what? I said, I know what you're going to do. Be done. Okay, God, he knew what Cain was going to do. He knew it. Why didn't God, in verse 7, say, Cain, don't you dare touch your brother. I say that all the time. Don't touch your brother. Don't. Why? The Lord has given us free will, which we've said out here many times before. It's both a blessing and a curse. See, I could wake up every morning and God could say, James, 10 o'clock, 
Someone's going to call you, and they're going to tick you off, and you're going to be tempted to get mad at them. So start praying now. Oh, and James, by the way, when you're watching TV tonight at 7, there's going to be this program coming on, and it's going to look really good and really funny, but there's going to be something really inappropriate, so just switch the station. Don't go there. He could, but he's also giving me free will. So at 10 o'clock, I can choose to chew the person out. At 7 o'clock, I can choose to watch the inappropriate show. So why doesn't he warn me? He has warned me. That's what the 66 books of the Bible are. A warning. James, be careful. I love you. Is that exactly what he did to Cain in verses 6 and 7? Cain, come on, man. This is my translation. Buck up. You're getting ticked about nothing. Let it go. Do what's right. It's going to be okay. Hey, give me a hug and let's go. What does Cain do? Verse 8. Now Cain talked with Abel, his brother, and it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him. Now, if you have New Living Translation or NIV, it reads a little differently in verse 8. It says something to the effect of basically Cain saying to Abel, Hey, why don't you come out with me to the field? NIV and New Living Translation almost seem to present it as premeditated. Let's get Abel alone. Let's pull him out in the field by myself, and then I'm going to kill him. So... Cain's response reveals his heart. Cain's actions confirm his heart. He wanted Abel dead. Now think about this. Cain would rather have Abel killed than make the corrections in his own life. There are still Cains around today. I would rather do what's wrong than be corrected. Do you know somebody like that? They will rather walk in a path of sin that is wrong and they know it's wrong rather than saying, I want to do what's right and listen to you. What do you do with somebody like that? If you know a way to change their heart, please come talk to me after church because I have never found out how to change that heart. That's something between them and the Lord. They have to want to change. They are a scoffer. They have to want what's right. They have to care about what's right. And they have to care that God says this is right and do it. I don't know how many times people come up to me and say, I got this loved one. This is what they're doing. I've talked to them about it. They know it's wrong and they don't want to change. What do I do? My response is pray and fast for them. Because they know what's wrong. They know this is not the path that God chose them to go down. They still choose to go down it. So Cain's actions confirmed his heart. God's response, verse 9, Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel, your brother? As we say every time, if God ever asks a question in the Bible, he's not asking a question because he doesn't know it. He's asking a question to probe your heart. Cain, will you be honest with me? Will you confess? Will you repent? Cain's response, verse 9, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? Look at the heart being revealed. Unrepentance. God gave Cain an opportunity. Where is your brother? God, I'm so sorry killed him. No. Am I my brother's keeper? Verse 10. And he said, what have you done? Another opportunity. The voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Verse 11. So now you are cursed from the earth, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you till the ground, it shall no longer yield its strength to you. A fugitive and a vagabond, you shall be on earth. And Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Look at the response of Cain. Where's your brother? I don't know. Verse 13, this is too much for me. Or very simply put, this isn't fair. There's not an ounce of repentance in Cain. Do you know somebody like that? When something bad happens in their life, by their own doing, their only response is, well, this isn't fair. This isn't fair. 
Look, 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 look what they did. Look what they said to me. Look how they treated me. This isn't fair. You're wrong by your own actions. Okay, I may be wrong by what I said, but look what they did. No, it's not about them. It's about you. Every now and then in counseling, I'll get somebody who wants to come, and it's usually marriage counseling, where either the, the husband or wife wants to sit down and talk by themselves. And really what that means is code, I want to really talk bad about my spouse. And I'm not picking on that, but that's what they want to do. So I usually tell them, listen, it doesn't do any good for you and I to sit down alone and just talk about everything awful that your spouse is doing. It doesn't. If your spouse was here, we would say to them, this is what you're doing wrong. See, look at Cain. It's not about what I did. Verse 13, this isn't fair, Lord. It's not fair that Abel's dead. There is no repentance. There's no remorse. I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? Who, you know, this isn't fair, Lord. Do you know somebody whose life is completely falling apart? And it's not their fault in any way whatsoever. Oh, my goodness. They have never made a bad choice. They've just had really bad hands dealt to them in life. People have always been against them. Always. It goes back to their first grade teacher that didn't like them, you know? It's this mindset of I am not responsible for what I have done. I am not responsible for my actions now because it's not my fault. God, this is not my fault. You like Abel better than me. You offered it and took his sacrifice. What am I supposed to do? Cain is just making excuses. So Cain's curse... Cain's curse is this, verse 12, When you till the ground, it shall no longer yield its strength to you. A fugitive and a vagabond you shall be on the earth. So two things. Number one, Cain will never have peace. He's constantly moving. In fact, if you look in verse 16, Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and dwelt in the land of Nod on the east of Eden. The word Nod means wandering. Cain wandered. Plus, the ground, he would constantly be working to provide for himself. Well, you may say, well, isn't that part of the curse? Yes, that is part of the curse. But this is a whole other level. I I firmly believe that when Adam and Eve came out of the Garden of Eden, yes, the ground was cursed. They had weeds. They had problems. But this is a whole other level of this. And I find it interesting that Cain's strength, I will bring you my produce, now becomes his weakness. Has that not ever happened in our own life? The area that you think you're strongest in becomes your weakness. I've shared this story with you before, but it was about 10 years ago. I used to struggle with something really bad. And I remember I was out mowing my yard. I remember distinctly where I was at. And I remember I even stopped the lawnmower. And I stopped and I said, Lord, I have victory in this area finally. And once you know it, I stumbled right away, like later on that day. My strength became my weakness. I was walking in pride. I was walking in, Lord, I've defeated this. I've won. Cain's strength. Look at what I brought, the produce now become his weakness. That's what happened. Verse 14, Surely you have driven me out this day from the face of the ground. I shall be hidden from your face. I shall be a fugitive and a vagabond on the earth. And it will happen that anyone who finds me will kill me. And the Lord said to him, Therefore, whoever kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord set a mark on Cain, lest anyone finding him should kill him. Isn't it kind of interesting? Cain's walking in fear of being killed. But what did Cain do? Took an innocent life in Abel. Tell you, we can learn so much here from Cain and Abel. Turn, if you will, real quick to, uh, we have two passages to close up with. Genesis, excuse me, Galatians chapter 6 and Romans chapter 7. Galatians 6 and Romans 7. As we're going to Galatians 6 and Romans 7, does anybody have a quick questions, comments here about anything we covered? Ryan. How 
That's a good question. And my, my simple response is, why did, the, why did the Lord let Cain live? I think it's grace. I mean, think of it right now. If the Lord took you and I out every time we sinned, there would be nobody here. God, in His grace and mercy, let Cain live. The same thing still happens today. I see people walking this earth, and I'm going to be honest with you, and my fleshly wisdom, Lord, be a better place without them. God, in His grace and mercy, lets the sinners walk to hopefully maybe taste grace later on. So I think it's just a simple thing of God's love and grace. That's just my opinion. Anybody else got anything here? Renee. Well, Cain's generations, what happens to them? And I really wanted to get into this, because if you look in your, in your Bibles there, and from the rest of verse 4 on, we, we get a picture of Cain's generation. And we're not able to get in tonight, and we'll get in tomorrow, so I'm not trying to dodge your question. But what you see with Cain's generation, as time goes on, you just see this further falling away, farther and farther from the Lord. It's what I call a spiritual domino effect. Yes, we're all responsible for our actions, but when you start seeing people start raising their children in an ungodly home, and you see those kids in raising their kids in an ungodly home, and this is a further walking away from the Lord. Look at the phrasing there in Genesis. Um, where was it? We just read it. Verse 16, Cain went out from the presence of the Lord. I think that's a powerful verse. So, yes, to answer your question, and we'll get into this next week, as you study out Cain's descendants, you see it just getting worse and worse and worse. Anybody else have anything here? Ron. Could Cain have possibly repented now at a later time? Well, I think Cain could have possibly repented at a later time. I don't want to put God in a box there. Uh, maybe that was part of the reason why Cain had the mark, is that he knew that Cain's life would be spared on this earth and that there's a chance maybe later on for Cain to uh, repent. And also, in verse 15, they talked about whoever slays Cain's vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. Mm-hmm. So the person that kills Cain, kills Cain is going to have vengeance on him? Yeah, but God was basically saying, is, look, I told you not to touch him, don't touch him. If you touch him, this is your punishment. It's a way to kind of keep Cain safe. No, I think he put a mark on him to mark him to say, God said, stay away from him. The mark is there for the protection of Cain. Mark, the mark is not Cain walking around with a bullseye on his back saying, hey, everybody hunt Cain. The mark is there for God to say, this man has been marked. Stay away from him. Don't bother him. Don't touch him. Anybody else have anything here before we close up? Okay, I said we were going to get back to that passage at the beginning of Genesis where it says sin's desire is to rule over us. Very simple. Sin wants you, sin wants me. I mean, that's we, we walk in the struggle of sin, of being tempted, of, of falling, getting back up, being repentant, but then falling, and it's this, this process, and it's just awful. This process of, Lord, I want to be a better man or woman in God. Look here, Galatians, uh, it's actually Galatians 5 is where we're going to start. Galatians 5, how quickly this just sums it up. Galatians 5, verse 16. I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you should not fulfill the lust of the flesh. So that's basically what God told Cain. Cain, if you do what's right, things will go well for you. Guess what? If you want your life to go better and make better godly choices, verse 16, walk in the Spirit, and you won't be in the flesh. By walking in the Spirit, by walking according to God's will, by walking according to God's Word, by being a man and woman of prayer, by surrounding yourself with those things of the Lord that encourage, not tear down. I've said this before, and this is probably the simplest statement for the truest statement. 
If I'm in the Word, and I'm in prayer, and I'm seeking the Lord, things just go better. And when I say things just go better, I don't mean to make it sound like I don't get flat tires, and I don't have this happen. Those things still happen. But since I'm walking in the Spirit, I am better able to handle those trials and tribulations of life that come. If I'm not walking in the Spirit and I'm walking in the flesh, my goodness, one little thing will tear me down for the rest of the day. You know somebody like that? Where they come home from work and everything's fine and then one little thing bugs them and oh my goodness, the rest of the evening is lost. They're walking in the flesh. When you walk in the Spirit, little things don't become big things. When you walk in the flesh, if you know somebody who's walking in the flesh, you walk around on eggshells around them. Because you just don't want anything to happen to make them mad. Because if they get mad, oh my goodness, they're going to do this and that. Come on, walk in the Spirit. Verse 17, for the flesh lusts against the Spirit and the Spirit against the flesh. These are contrary to one another, so you do not do the things you wish. That is Christianity. There's a part of me that says, Lord, I want to serve you and love you. There's a part of me that says, boy, that sin looks fun. The Bible says in the book of Hebrews, the pleasures of sin. Sin is pleasurable for a moment. Followed by guilt and shame and conviction and defeat. It's not worth it. So what happens, verse 18, if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under law. Verse 19 and 20 and 21 list all the acts of the flesh. Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanliness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery. Now all those we agree with, those are all bad. Verse 20, hatred. Well, come on. You don't know what they did to me. So I should be able to allow to have a little hatred, right? Contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath. Well, I wouldn't have outbursts of wrath if they didn't say that. Selfish ambitions. What do you mean? It can't be about me for a little bit. Dissensions, heresies, envy, murderers, drunkenness, reveries, and the like. Of which I tell you beforehand, just as I also told you in times past, those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. See, the problem is we look at verses 19 through 21 and we pick and choose. I used to joke it's kind of like that infomercial for Richard Simmons, you know? Everyone has different points. So, yeah, I agree. Murder's bad. I will stay away from murder. But I should be able to have a little bit of hatred. Just a little. And then to make up for it, I will not have so much lewdness because I'm going to have an outburst of wrath today. And we have this little balance thing going on. They're all evil. They're all bad. And it's amazing that we know people that I would never commit adultery on my wife, but I'll scream at her. We know people that would I would never murder somebody. But my goodness, I will hold a grudge against you for the rest of my life. They're all sinful, sinful acts. Verse 22, but the fruit of the Spirit. Now listen to this. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering or patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Boy, that's the Spirit. Just simply ask yourself, what describes you better? Verses 19, 20, or 21? Or verses 22 and 23? If you're in verses 19, 20, and 21, you're walking in the flesh. If you're in verses 22 and 23, you're walking in the Spirit. Now be honest with yourself when it comes to that. Sin wants you to be in 19, 20, and 21. Now the truth of the matter is, I visit 19 and 20 and 21 sometimes. Oh, but Lord, I don't want to stay there. Some of us set up camp in 19, 20, and 21, and then we make a really nice house there. And that's where we live. You do not want to walk in the flesh. You're going to be in 22 and 23. Last passage, and then we're going to be done. Can you please go to Romans chapter 7? Because I think what happens is at this time, is we stop and we say, okay, Lord, this is not what I want. I, I agree with what God told Cain. 
I, I, sin lies at the door. It wants to bring me down. It wants to bring my marriage down. It wants to bring my life down. I don't want to walk in this way. I don't want to be like Cain. I, you know, I don't want to be the scoffer. I don't want to be unrepentant. I don't want to walk around cursed. I don't. But Lord, I struggle. But what you have here, I believe, in Romans chapter 7 is one of the most honest passages in the entire Bible about struggling. And if you've never read this passage, oh my goodness, it is, it's just so absolutely amazing. Now, I'm going to read this out of the New Living Translation because I love the way that this reads. So, let's go ahead and pick it up here in verse 14, about halfway through. The trouble was with me, for I am all too human, a slave to sin. I don't really understand myself, for I want to do what is right, but I don't do it. Instead, I do what I hate. I know that what I'm doing is wrong. It shows that I agree the law is good, so I'm not the one doing wrong. It is sin living in me that does it. Verse 18, And I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my sinful nature. I want to do what is right, but I can't. I want to do what is good, but I don't. I don't want to do what is wrong, but I do it anyway. But if I do what I don't want to do, I'm not really the one doing it. It is sin living in me that does it. I have discovered this principle of life, that when I want to do what is right, I inevitably do what is wrong. I love God's law with all my heart, but there's another power within me that it's war with my mind. This power makes me a slave to sin that is still with me. Oh, what a miserable person I am. Who will free me from this life that is dominated by sin and death? See, now the problem is we stop at verse 24. Who's going to help me? And we walk around in depression and discouragement. Who's going to help me? The answer is found in verse 25. Thank God. The answer is in Jesus Christ our Lord. So you see how it is. In my mind, I really want to obey God's law, but because of my sinful nature, I'm a slave to sin. Paul wrote that. Paul, who wrote half the New Testament, Paul's super saint, says every day it's a struggle to not do what's wrong, and I want to do what's right. I tell you, nothing has changed in 6,000 years from when God told that to Cain. Nothing has changed in 2,000 years since Paul wrote that. The things you want to do that's right, you struggle to do. The things that you don't want to do that are wrong, we still do them. Who's going to save us from this? The answer is Jesus Christ. Who would have saved Cain from this trouble? God. God said, Cain, if you do what is well, if you do what is good, will not things go well? How simple is this? Follow the path that God has laid out in your life that is right, that is biblical, that is of the Lord. Things will go better. When you walk in the flesh, it will tear you down and it will destroy you. There's no way around that. What we see here in Genesis 4, the first half, you see sin. You see the effects of sin. Genesis 3 shows us the fall. The second half of Genesis 3 shows us the curse. Genesis 4 now shows us this is a world run by sin. And we're still in it today. God help us as we fight through this through the Spirit. Anybody have any final questions, comments here? Steph? Mm-hmm. No, good question there. Cain was afraid that uh, someone would kill him, and Steph was asking what it had just been his parents. Most people believe at this time, because if you look in verse um, 17, it says that Cain knew his wife. Most people believe by the time that Cain killed Abel that many generations has come, and so there would be many other people on the earth there too, other descendants there, other kids, etc. 
other siblings, yeah. And the siblings would have had kids, and then the earth would have populated very quickly, which we're going to get into next week because everybody asks this question, verse 17, who was Cain's wife? That always pops up. They don't care if Jesus died on the cross for their sins, but who was Cain's wife? So I agree with you. It leads to that question. Well, if it was just Adam and Eve, what do we have to worry about? Most people believe by the time that this happened, the earth would have been very populated because there had been many other kids that would have had more kids, and there would have been a big family there going on at the time. Anybody else have anything here before we close up? All right, let's pray and we'll let you go. Heavenly Fathers, we just come to you now. Um, Lord, help us just to learn from this. Sin, the power of sin, Lord. But even more powerful than sin is the power of the blood of Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord. I just think back to that song we sang tonight, the power of the blood. Amen, Lord. Help us to walk in victory in you. Help us to walk in the spirit and not the flesh. Lord, help us to walk in you. And we lift this up in your name. Amen. All right, you guys have a good week and God bless.